This week on Life and Faith. This is about being a good citizen. This is about being a responsible parent and and spouse. This is about becoming a culturally creative and contributing member of the human race. It's infringing on the concept of human identity. We underestimate the positive impact we can bring to other people's lives. There were just so many of them that I couldn't ignore it. I was surprised they were surprised. It was surprising. This is Life and Faith from CPX. I'm Simon Smart. Have a listen to this clip from the 1992 movie Leap of Faith. I wonder how this kind of spoof makes you feel. Brother Will, everything you said is true. Absolutely true. Yes, I was born to lowly circumstances. Yes, I ran with a bad crowd that taught me to smoke weed and steal. I hung out in bars and I hot-wired cars. I grew up mistreated, so I lied and I cheated. I learned hard crime and I served hard time. I have walked that crooked road and I have danced with the demon Satan. I've been face down in the gutter and looked up into the face of God. And I say to you tonight, if you want to give up the bottle, who are you going to talk to? Someone who's never touched a drop? And if you want to give up womanizing, who are you going to talk to? Some pale-skinned virgin priest? And if you want to give up sin, and I believe everyone here tonight wants to give up sin, who can lead you off that crooked road? You need a real sinner, people. A sinner of such monumental proportions that all your sins wrapped up in one couldn't possibly equal the sins of this king of sin. Because you know if he can walk that straight and righteous path, if he can go from grit to grace, from sin to sanctity, from lowliness to holiness, that you, with all your everyday sins, can rise up like an angel and ride that golden elevator to God's own penthouse in the sky. That's Steve Martin in the movie Leap of Faith, playing a familiar stereotype of an evangelical travelling preacher, coming to town in a circus-like atmosphere. It's all there in the clip. The dim lights, the emotive music, the preacher in slick clothes there to build up the crowd into a frenzy and then fleece them of their money. It's a classic character that's picked up in movies fairly often by comedians, and there's no doubt enough truth in it to make it work in a comedy. I actually found some pretty horrendous real-life examples when I was researching today's topic. But what is evangelicalism? Who are the evangelicals? What do they do, and what have they contributed to the world? Is the caricature we often see the best way to understand evangelicals? Well, Professor John Stackhouse is a theologian and an author and a fellow here at CPX, and so we speak with him semi-regularly from his home in Canada. He recently published a book with Oxford University Press, Evangelicalism, A Very Short Introduction, and he's my guest today. When I spoke with him about this, I wanted to know what he senses are the images that flow into people's minds when they hear the term evangelical today. 
Well, I think in Australia, as up here in Canada, the images are generally not very positive. You tend to think of somebody loud, uh, somebody who has a lot to say at you, uh, if not with you or to you, tends to be somebody who's uh, sure of themselves to the point of arrogance, uh, who wants everybody to agree and is trying to convert everybody to agree, uh, usually with some kind of right-wing political affiliation, if not a kind of fanaticism. So generally, nobody you want to have around to dinner. Uh, <laughs> certainly nobody want to have marry your daughter. I mean, it's, the, the image could hardly be worse. And polls show that evangelicals are among the least trusted and, and the most uh, distrusted people in Australian society and in Canadian and American society too. So how accurate is the image that people are getting? It's not entirely wrong, is it? Well, no, I'm like that myself. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, on, on my worst days, maybe. Um, no, I mean, it comes from somewhere, and especially comes from our shouty friends in the United States and their massive media machines. There is, as you know, a lot of uh, audience share and money to be made by appealing in a kind of popular way to people's best and worst motives. And evangelicalism can do both at the same time. So a lot of people in the States have created kind of media empires and tremendous personal brands. And so with the reach of American media all around the English speaking world and beyond, uh, we tend to have that kind of image in our minds because they're the loudest and the brightest. It's the, the quieter, more sensible people usually in every movement, that don't tend to get as much attention and therefore the movement looks more extreme than it perhaps it is. So describe for us the typical evangelical of 2022 then. Who is she? What's she like? Where does she live? Well, I appreciate you changing the sex to she because, in fact, demographically, globally speaking, the typical evangelical, as I say, statistically speaking, is a woman, young, probably 30 or so, uh, with one or more children. She lives in sub-Saharan Africa or Latin America. Uh, she may have a high school education, maybe more, but she probably is married to uh, an artisan or a shopkeeper. Um, she's very glad that evangelicalism has come into her life because her husband doesn't drink like he used to and he doesn't waste money like he used to. And she sings in her church choir and perhaps teaches a women's group um, while she looks after her kids. This would be demographically, in fact, the typical evangelical now, globally speaking. John, you mentioned the cultural influence of evangelicals, which you say is very significant today as well as historically. Evangelicalism is culturally very significant in the places where evangelicals are very numerous. But that's only a few places. That is to say, I should say, numerous relative to the rest of the population. There are lots and lots of evangelicals all around the world, but you can only become culturally significant either by simply having a lot of you or because you happen to occupy particular positions of cultural authority. If we think of our Jewish friends, for instance, they're not numerically superior anywhere in the world outside Israel. But if they occupy particular positions, they can be culturally very significant. In the case of evangelicalism, there is no real parallel to the Jewish people that way. Evangelicals haven't been that savvy or that talented or, or whatever it is. <laughs> um, so wherever evangelicals are culturally significant, it's because of sheer numbers. 
in the United States, that's the example par excellence, right? Because there's so many evangelicals due to the successful evangelism of the 19th century as the American frontier kept pushing steadily westward and farmers and ranchers and others heard preachers speak in their own language. Often they were farmers themselves. Evangelicalism was massively successful in winning the hearts and minds of Americans, uh, frankly, unlike almost anywhere in the world. In Britain, evangelicals have always been a minority so that they are significant, but they don't dominate the culture. Same in Canada, same in Oz, same in New Zealand. So in the Anglosphere, in the English-speaking world, evangelicals have been somewhat significant. Sometimes they inspire political parties. Sometimes they will inspire uh, popular movements of social care. Uh, They've been very busy in charity work, for instance. But only in the United States, and now in a few select places in the South American continent, a little bit in Latin America, north of that, and in Korea, do we see evangelicals of a significant power block actually able to affect elections and perhaps change something of the national conversation. Now, something perhaps we should have said at the start is trying to define, it's notoriously difficult to do this, I know, but what is an evangelical? The word itself is pretty easy to define because it comes from a basic Bible word. Evangel is the English expression of a Greek word, euangelion, which means the good news or the gospel, as uh, Christians will say. So in the history of our language and related languages, evangelical simply meant of the gospel. So somebody whose life and teachings reminded people of the good news of Jesus could be called evangelical. So the medieval Saint Francis of Assisi, for instance, was often called evangelical. But we don't mean that today, right? We're downstream, particularly the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century, where they started to use the term evangelical about their version of Christianity versus the Roman Catholic version they were trying to reform. And then in the 18th century, a couple centuries later, a transatlantic collection of revivals and exciting church experiences broke out in uh, around the British Isles and in the American colonies. And this is where we get evangelicalism coming really into its own. I define it historically. In other words, what do those people in the 18th century look like? And what are people who are really their descendants, what do they look like today? I borrow from the work of a couple of historians, particularly the English historian, David Bebbington, to say, and I I refine it and I add to it a bit. So I, I want to say six things, if I can, just very briefly. Evangelicals are Christians who strongly believe in the Trinity. They believe in a God who is Father, who is Son in the person of Jesus, and in the Holy Spirit. So they emphasize all three of those persons of God and lots of different ways. So they're Trinitarian. They're Biblicistic. They rely very strongly in the Bible as their main or even their sole source of religious knowledge and ethical guidance. They're conversionistic, They believe that you are not born a Christian, you're not automatically a Christian, you have to become a Christian by your own choice and then continue to grow up as a Christian to be fully converted. They're fourthly missional. They're busy folk who like to be on a mission out there, 
particularly to convert other people to Christianity, but also to serve the poor, to serve the needy, to reform culture and so on. Those are four fairly familiar ones, Simon. And then I've added two. One is populist, the way evangelicals come up with who's going to lead them and which kinds of authorities will they follow is an appeal to popular sentiment, not to tradition, not to accomplishment, but to the sense of the people as to whether you have the spirit of God on you or not. Mm. Um, So they tend to be populist in that regard. And then finally, pragmatic. Evangelicals are not conservatives. There are people who are conservative Christians, but evangelicals are selectively conservative. They'll hold to certain truths and certain ideas from the past, but then they're quite freewheeling when it comes to innovation, particularly in technology. That's why evangelicals have been pioneers in radio and television and social media and so on. They're very happy to present the old-time gospel with the latest technology. So evangelicals, I think, are properly defined by all six of those together. And it seems to me, the last thing I'll say is that evangelicalism is a style of being a Protestant Christian. And there are some Catholics who look like this too, but that's a bit complicated. So for now, I'll simply say evangelicals tend to be Protestant Christians who show all six of these signs, as opposed to conservatives who just try to keep the tradition they inherited intact and faithful, and liberals who, like their name, means free. They're free to keep or to discard anything in the tradition that they happen to inherit. Evangelicals have a core of traditional doctrine that they don't yield on, and that's the same century after century. But beyond that, they're pretty innovative. Thank you. That's very helpful. Now, you come from the evangelical world, and you write in your book that you've been both blessed and wounded by that world. Now, I wondered, was this project of taking on this book like dwelling on a family history of both the, you know, the joyful things but also the painful things? Yeah, it helps to be middle-aged and uh, to have uh, worked through some of the ways in which I've been grateful for my evangelical heritage. Uh, I'm grateful for the strong community I grew up in, a little church in northern Ontario, Canada, where people really did care for each other and really did get into each other's business largely in a good way. Mm-hmm. Glad for their love for and respect for the Bible. You couldn't get away with uh, theological claims unless you could back it up with the scripture. I mean, nobody in the congregation had any kind of formal education in the Bible, but boy, did they ever study it. And they, they worked hard to try to become as biblical as they could be. And I've been grateful to be connected with this worldwide movement of interesting and vital and energetic people who are generally trying to do the right thing. Now, I may disagree with what they think is the right thing. I certainly disagree with how some of them do it. But it's generally a movement that nobody joins unless they're quite serious and sincere. I mean, there are charlatans, there are exploiters, but nobody really wants to be an evangelical unless you're really serious about it. So the downside, of course, is that Every movement that attracts a certain amount of money and power attracts people who are into the money and power. And evangelicalism, by its very populism, tends sometimes to celebrity culture. And we've certainly seen celebrities blow themselves up all around the globe as people who really weren't qualified for massively important leadership, nonetheless, get it. And it's as if they lose their bearings and they lose their souls. So evangelicalism can 
be a, a fascinating and interesting and entrepreneurial kind of religion, but it also is a religion that doesn't have a lot of guardrails and, and not very good breaks. Uh, so things can go off the road uh, way more easily than they can in some other forms of religion. Uh, and that explains a lot of the downside of it too. You've made the point a few times that the Bible is central for evangelicals. What difference does making the Bible the center of your expression of faith? What is the sort of impact of that? Well, I think having a book that you're not free to disagree with and a book that's pretty thick and pretty complicated that you are obliged then to try to make sense of, um, it really, I think, helpfully militates against the cultural norm of your country and mine, where my personal intuition is perfectly adequate for me to decide all sorts of things from whether I should get a vaccination or not, or whether I should wear a mask or not, or whether I should spank my kids or not, or for whom should I vote in the next election? More and more Aussies and Canucks, they, they just They've given up on authorities. They've given up trusting the people on TV or the people at the university or the people at City Hall. Mm. And so now we're all just following our own bliss and following our own lights. But for the serious Christian, there is something else in this book that we trust also God personally uses to guide us. And this isn't just an evangelical thing. This would just be any sensible Christian is trying to run his or her life uh, not using the Bible as a rule book because it's too complicated to be that, but as this rich collection of literature that sets out a way of living and a way of being that I want to conform my life to rather than just doing whatever I think is best, which I think is a pretty dangerous way to live. Faith, and I'm speaking with John Stackhouse about his book on evangelicalism. What is it? What's been its legacy? Now, a big part of the book is looking at this historical movement of evangelicalism that John Stackhouse argues has been a force for good overall. And I wanted to know about the broad contributions of the evangelicals across several hundred years. Evangelicals generally are impatient. Uh, we generally don't take the status quo for granted as good enough. Uh, evangelicalism is at once a renewal movement and a reform movement. Uh, so at its very beginning, evangelicals said, you know, this just isn't good enough, this kind of Christianity. It's not good enough. Like just going to church and just showing up you know, a few times a year and just putting a few pennies in the, in the offering plate, that's just not good enough. Like just to say prayers once in a while or when you're stuck, that's not good enough. Like we, we got to aim much, much higher than this. This is serious. This is about serious adult life. So evangelicalism at its best has been this call to serious, responsible living. And I think as it got extended beyond the spiritual, it's, this is about being a good citizen. This is about being a responsible parent and, and spouse. This is about becoming uh, a culturally creative and contributing member of the human race. And so evangelicalism is quite inspiring in that way, as I think all good religion is, but particularly this form of religion is, is particularly powerful that way. And so evangelicals have tended to want to change things for the better. They tend not to think this is good enough. Let's just stay here. Now, evangelicalism gets bound up with, in various ways, the colonial project. 
What were its greatest sins in this period, and was it all bad? Well, evangelicalism comes a little late to the missionary enterprise. Our Roman Catholic and Orthodox counterparts were at missionary work centuries before uh, there was even an evangelicalism. But evangelicalism kind of made up for lost time in the 19th, 20th, and 21st centuries. And now they're a pretty formidable group of missionaries all around the world. In fact, we sometimes talk about evangelical missionary work nowadays as from anywhere to everywhere. I mean, you've got missionaries from Brazil coming to Canada and missionaries from Korea going to Australia and so on. So evangelicals in this missional concern are, are busy people trying to make things better. And sometimes they... Inevitably, I would say, not just sometimes, they inevitably bring their own culture with them and their own cultural norms with them. Evangelicalism says there is a good news that is for everyone, and you should listen to it and ideally accept it. Now, that's a pretty heavy thing to say. What makes it worse is if you bundle in with this good news from the Bible aspects of your own culture that you haven't sufficiently distinguished from that transcultural good news. So now you not only should accept the good news of God's work in Jesus Christ, but you should pray. And in just this particular way, or you should set up a church and in just this particular way, and you should have your marriages and your child rearing and your politics in just this particular way, because I haven't fully distinguished what the Bible says from what my culture brings. And there, of course, uh, lie all sorts of perils. Now, evangelicalism is a very activist brand of the faith. So I wonder if you could give us just one or two of your favorite evangelicals who made a difference in the world, a positive contribution. Well, a couple come to mind. Uh, one is Mary Slessor, who comes as a Scottish missionary to West Africa and is coming there to convert people to Christianity and save their souls. But when she gets there, she finds out that among the tribal peoples she's serving, there is the belief that the birth of twins is the mark of a curse. And this aberration is dealt with by exposure. They basically abandon the twins uh, to die. And she starts to round up twins and save them. And dozens and dozens and dozens of these are put into orphanages by Mary Slessor. And she simultaneously teaches people about the true God who loves everybody, including these twins, and makes a significant social difference. Pandita Ramabai in India, uh, who thrives a little bit later uh, into the 20th century, is a young orphan who becomes so expert in Sanskrit, the classical language of Indian culture, that she and her brother uh, make a living on the streets when their parents have died by reciting some of the great literature of the uh, Hindu religion. And she's given a, a title of Sarasvati uh, from the University of Calcutta, the first woman ever to be named a kind of pundit. She's called Pandita. Um, mm. But then she goes to Britain to study medicine. Her eyesight, I think it is, um, isn't as strong as it needs to be. So she ends up dropping out, but becoming a Christian at the same time, and an advocate for women's rights back in India. And she tours around the world on behalf of women, writes a best-selling book, and moves uh, to the other side of India, to uh, near uh, Bombay, now Mumbai, 
and starts a famous mission that exists to this day that literally saved thousands of orphan girls, educated them, taught them crafts, taught them ways of, of coping with society. She campaigned relentlessly against sati, against the burning of widows, and was persecuted pretty fiercely by Hindu nationalists for her faith. But I, I was delighted to know that um, when I was checking my groceries out um, here in Eastern Canada a couple of weeks ago, I fell into conversation with the young woman who was checking out my groceries from uh, India. And she remembers being taught about Pandita Ramabai in her school as an Indian national hero. Um, and so there have been these uh, women as well as men who have made significant cultural differences, uh, even as they are also happy to credit it all to Jesus Christ. Tell us about conversion as a key part of the evangelical experience. As I suggested, evangelicals believe that Christianity is not simply a tradition or an inheritance. It really is an existential experience of God. It really is an encounter with the living personal God of the Bible. So for evangelicals, conversion is very much like a personal introduction to a famous celebrity uh, who actually wants to know you and has actually taken measures to get to know you. And God has done what he can to bring men and women into contact with himself and wants to form a strong, lasting relationship of love with each one of us. So that at the heart of Christianity generally, and of evangelicalism in particular, is the sense that we need to wake up out of whatever worldview we have, whatever world and life pattern we have, and, and see where the truth is, see where life lies. I think it's Soren Kierkegaard, the, the Danish philosopher writing 150 years ago, not an evangelical per se, but looking very evangelicalish when he, when he wants his society to kind of wake up out of their sleep and, and stop being automatic automatons and take hold of their lives as an existentialist Christian. Well, it's a very evangelical message to say, get serious about your life and team up with God who can give you uh, the spiritual and moral power to become the best version of yourself that you can be. Evangelicals do want to convert people to save them from hell and to get them onto God's team for the next life. That's true. But they want people to enjoy that next life now. This is what the New Testament means by eternal life is the life of the age to come. Evangelicals don't want to get people up to heaven. We want to help people move forward to the new world that Jesus is going to bring when he returns. And evangelicals mean that quite literally. They think Jesus is really going to come back and really revolutionize the world. And in this what I call Earth 2.0, on this new situation, evangelicalism wants people to not only get on Jesus' side, but also be sufficiently converted that we can be good citizens of that peaceable kingdom. And that, Simon, to me, is where the really hard work is of evangelicalism, is the daily work to become more like Jesus and less how I used to be. And frankly, I find that plenty hard work. What now for evangelicals in the West? I mean, have they had their day? They certainly seem out of step with their highly secularized culture. Well, evangelicalism has been fairly out of step with most elite cultures from the beginning. So that's nothing new and nothing that evangelicals worry too much about or should. Evangelicals do value human culture, at least we should, but we also know that without 
allegiance to Jesus. Human culture wobbles and spins and gets off track very easily, as most of us know, whether we're Christians or not. So the fact that evangelicalism doesn't happen to conform to the best thinking of a certain group of the day, you know, frankly, as a Canadian, I'm worried about my American friends that evangelicalism is far too conformed to uh, certain parts of dominant American culture today. I'd like it to be a little less acceptable to the Republican Party of the United States. So I think there's always a tension there. And I think the key for evangelicals is to be truly a good citizen who loves his or her neighbor, as Jesus commanded us to do, while keeping focused on God and God's word and scripture, however that works out. Sometimes that's going to be in conformity with the best attributes of Australian culture or Canadian culture. After all, our cultures were deeply formed by Christianity. So whether it's care for immigrants or whether it's care for the poor, uh, whether it's good education for everyone, uh, whether it's the eradication of child poverty in Australia and Canada, uh, these are all things that evangelicals have long been for and continue to team up with others on behalf of. Where evangelicals, like any other group, have to be careful is getting caught up in our own internal struggles for power and prestige, or to be distracted by second-order annoyances and fail to focus on what really matters. That's a problem in Canada. I suspect it's a problem in Australia too. There are some committed believers who would fit the classical description of an evangelical, but who wouldn't want to use that term anymore because of the associations it has for people. Is the term itself problematic? Does it need replacing or adjusting? I lived in the United States between 1980 and 1990, which some of you will know uh, are the Reagan years, all eight of them, and then two years of George Bush the first. It was a bit awkward to be, in my case, a left of center evangelical uh, in that world. I got away with it because I was a Canadian and everybody's nice to Canadians in the States, but just like they all think all Aussies are bronze athletes. I mean, you can get away with a lot, right? With an Aussie accent and you can get away with a bit by wearing a maple leaf in the, in the States too. But that was tough. It was even worse under George W. Bush, my friends tell me. And now, of course, it's become dreadful under uh, the shadow of, of he who must not be named. Um, mm. And this is a real problem. So there's nothing in the Bible that says Christians should use the term evangelical when they're an evangelical, right? There's no divine mandate. It's just, it's just a term. It's just a word. It's just that I would say as a scholar, there is no better term for the kind of thing I'm talking about that I see in the 18th century and subsequently, and that I see in global Christianity around the world. I mean, what are you going to call the explosion of a certain kind of Christianity in sub-Saharan Africa? What are you going to call this thing that I saw when I was in Seoul, Korea, or I was I saw when I'm in Bangalore in South India, right? But I, what, 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 why does that look so much like what I've seen in Sydney and Adelaide and, and Auckland and, and Dunedin when I've been down under? The best term is evangelicalism when it comes to the analytical academic categories. But when I'm at a dinner party, I tend to avoid the E word. Um, I, even the word Christian is, is problematic. So I sure don't want to get the term evangelical uh, anywhere uh, in the conversation if I can avoid it. Do you replace it with your definition, with a six-part definition? <laughs> well, if I, if I want to never be invited back, yes, I, I certainly go into the six points. Yeah. Yes. Uh, lastly, what, what are your hopes for your book? We've written a lot of books. What are you hoping this one will do? 
Well, probably, and this is the case of people who've written several books, probably your, you know, your smallest and cheapest book is the one you'll get known for, right? Because <laughs> people can actually <laughs> afford to buy it and they might actually read it. And that's okay, because I've actually put a lot of thought into this little book. I deliberately didn't make it simply a short history of evangelicalism. Uh, there is a really good short history of evangelicalism written by the Englishman John Wolfe and the Australian uh, Mark Hutchinson. But really what I'm trying to get at is what is evangelicalism? What is this style of Christianity? What does make Mary Slessor and Pandita Ramabai and, and John Wesley, um, what makes them kin? And what is there in this movement that might be interesting and even life-giving uh, for people today? One of the burdens of the book is to say that evangelicalism is not a white American nationalist phenomenon. It just happens to be that way in America because of America's own historical peculiarities. But the vast majority of evangelicals, as you and I started this conversation, don't look and sound like that. They look like this brown or black woman holding her baby and her Bible, singing in church before she goes home to look after her family and then teach a Sunday school class a little bit later. That's what evangelicalism looks like, and I'm proud to be part of that. This has been Life and Faith with me, Simon Smart. Thanks today to John Stackhouse. John's book is Evangelicalism, A Very Short Introduction. It's recommended reading for anyone interested in this topic and a bit confused about the term and the role of evangelicals in history. It's not only helpful, but fascinating and I would say inspiring. Some great stories in there. Please do share this episode with someone you think might enjoy it and leave us a rating or review. It helps get life and faith out to more listeners. Next week. The immediate consequences for me in the weeks that followed was I got moved off that site and then about two weeks after being on that side, I got released. So within a month, I was looking for a job. <laughs>